Hello, linguistic and intergalactic travelers. I'm Grant Faulkner, struggling writer, eager traveler, and executive director of NaNoWriMo. And I'm here with my very well-traveled and adventurous co-host, Brooke Warner. And Brooke, the reason I'm playing around with this travel theme is that movement, migration, seeking, flight, and the resulting dangers of going to other places, including the dangers of being othered, is at the heart of today's show. Uh, I read this very interesting quote from our guest today, Shanti Sekaran, who said, If you look at the seven basic plot types that we talk about in kinds of writing, immigration can fit into all of those. Fighting the beast, the hero's journey, comedy, tragedy. Immigration works its way into all of these motifs. I think it also speaks to the fact that migration is not just the act of crossing a geographical border. Migration happens to us consistently throughout our lives. Motherhood is a type of migration. Getting married is a type of migration. We migrate constantly throughout our lives, and I think when we look at migration in political terms, we really otherize it. We don't realize that we are constantly migrating, that these immigrants that we cast as the other are actually doing something that your standard American does very frequently throughout their lives. So I'm curious what your take is on this idea of immigration, at least in the broad sense, is perhaps the guiding metaphor for storytelling in general. Yeah, I have to say I adore that way of thinking about migrating, both because it helps us to see the ways in which we're all in motion, you know, transitioning from one identity to the next, and that migrating across borders is not so different from migrating across different thresholds of our lives, which I think is really important. And to Shanti's point, you know, it kind of prevents people from otherizing each other. And then to be a writer, you have to see these transitions, be curious about them and want to explore the lives at the center of the movement and the swirl. And it makes me, well, she mentions the hero's journey, the heroine's journey in that quote. You know, classically, that's about leaving home and discovering something in the world beyond what you know. And then you change, you face challenges, and then you bring back a gift, sometimes as simple as knowledge. Uh, But of course, with many stories, especially women's stories, I know intimately, the heroine's journey is in fact very local and very close to home. It can be domestic uh, or the journey of a career or a big and meaningful life transition, you know, maybe something like motherhood. And all of those things can also be heroic. And so, you know, during this nearly two years that we've been challenged in so many ways, living through the pandemic, I think everyday stories are the ones that are touching me the most and the ones that are pulling at my heartstrings. Those are quote unquote heroine and heroes' journeys. Yeah, it's true. I think we often unnecessarily privilege the stories of the hero's kind of external quest without reckoning with the interior domestic quest that can be equally dramatic and interesting. And I always think of how we hear of Odysseus's exploits on his travels back home after the Trojan War, but his wife Penelope's drama of being the one waiting is in many ways uh, just as interesting or more interesting to me. I'd love to read about that. But I love exploring metaphors for storytelling. It really helps me write. And as I mentioned before on the show, while I like some of the concepts of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, and I find it interesting to think about it. I often find myself alienated by it as well. And I've also found myself increasingly uncomfortable with the traditional roller coaster metaphor for plot or, or Freitag's pyramid, as it's known, because it just doesn't offer a mental model that helps me conceive of my stories. Somehow my stories don't fit on that roller coaster. So I really like this metaphor of migration, um, a character's movement 
into the unknown. I think it gets at the very basics of plot, you know, a character's seeking or desiring, and then the conflict that ensues from that. And I think of the way Stephen King actually boiled down plot to being simply a character going into a situation on one side and exiting on the other side uh, changed, and the situation changes the character. So that's a type of migration, and plot is migration or a series of migrations. And perhaps those migrations, you know, they build up tension and suspense, or perhaps they swirl about, or perhaps uh, it's just like one long migration, a pilgrimage, a flight. So with the idea of migration as a model, Brooke, what are some of your favorite migration stories or memoirs, you know, whether they're about literal migrations or the more personal migrations that Shanti also mentions? One of the ones I thought of was the memoir Floating in a Most Peculiar Way. We interviewed Louis Chude Soki earlier this year. His book was an epic migration story about leaving this little tiny country of Biafra, which was then subsumed by Nigeria after his father was assassinated and then migrating to Jamaica, his mother's birthplace, and then migrating again to the U.S. and trying to fit in here as a Black man who was very much not African-American and then all the struggles that ensued. I mean, that one obviously fits into a very traditional narrative. But what I liked about it were these big migrations and questions of identity. And then there have been a couple of standout memoirs about being undocumented in the U.S. that I would love to call attention to, Children of the Land by Marcelo Hernandez Garcia, and he was also a past guest of ours. Another one I loved was Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen, Jose Antonio Vargas, and he's Filipino, and I would love to have him on the show sometime. We discussed this a bit, too, with Gabriela Garcia when we had her on the show. We talked about immigration, which is parallel to migration. I mean, migration has so many more open-ended aspects to it, which which is what's interesting about today's conversation. But we talked to her about whether these stories, these immigration stories, hold a special place for writers. And Shanti is going to talk about that today. I do think that human beings, you know, in general, we look to turning points of our lives. And there we find the stories that you know, not only we want to tell, but we need to tell. And those turning point moments, you know, maybe to Stephen King's point about plot, those are like little points of migration throughout the entire, the entirety of your experience or the character that you're writing about. Um, and how about you, Grant? I mean, what are the migration stories that have moved you or that have influenced you? You know, I was thinking about this uh, with Shanti's, you know, um, broad metaphor of, of migration being the model for storytelling. And I was thinking about how I thought of it more as the genre of travel literature, but it was the type of story that really drew me uh, to read when I first decided to become a writer. And I'm thinking of novels um, mainly about American expats abroad, such as F. Scott Fitzgerald's Tender as the Night, which takes place in France, or Malcolm Lowry's Under the Volcano, which takes place in Mexico, or Paul Bowles's The Sheltering Sky, which takes place in North Africa. And I actually wrote a novel based on The Sheltering Sky, and I read a lot of travel novels to research it. And what I found interesting is that most of them that I read, I have to say, were, were, were by white Westerners. And, and what I found was that many of them placed a somewhat privileged person in a foreign country and then had him, usually a him, confront the dangers or darkness of that country, othering the country in short. And I think the, maybe the prime example of this is Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness and its portrayal of the Congo. Um, but I read so many novels where this act of othering really struck and disturbed me as sort of a, um, 
expected part of the genre, a respected ingredient of the genre. And it was a learning experience for me about the working model um, that a lot of our Western travel literature has operated with and, and needs to, you know, get over. Um, on another note, though, I was thinking about it in terms of I just read Maggie Nelson's uh, Bluettes, which is a migration into grief and remembrance. And the book is constructed or around uh, snippets or fragments of prose, which she calls provocations. And it reminded me of Roland Barthes' Morning Diary, which he wrote after his mother died. And and both books show grief as something you don't travel through to another side and get over or recover from, but as something that eddies about in your life. And I think these are migration narratives in many ways as well, even if the migration is circular. Um, I mean, that is the point in a way to, to show the different way that grief moves in your life and the different boundaries it presents or, or resides within. And then I'm going to conclude by saying that, that one of my favorite novels is Teju Cole's Open City, which is basically about an immigrant character's musings while walking around New York City and encountering various situations. You know, uh, life is defined in the novel as a type of daily migration. Yeah, I, I know that that novel moved you, as you mentioned a couple of times before, it's definitely on my reading list. And I love that it comes back to this idea of the everyday, because uh, whenever I hear people fretting about whether they have enough of a story to write a book, I always try to encourage them that it's not about the drama, you know, of needing to have some big story or having lived through a trauma necessarily, because you don't have to have lived through the worst things in order to write. And I love that Open City is just about the characters encounters in New York City. City. And I actually felt that way about uh, Haruki Murakami's Wind Up Bird Chronicles. And it's an old book, and I read it a long time ago. But I have been struck by a couple of his novels where you know, he tends to write these characters that are just passive observers of their own life in a way, and not very much happens on the one hand, and yet they're so intense. And so that's they're interesting models to look at, you know, if you're thinking about it through the lens of migration. Um, that book had a big impact on me because I was like, huh, like a lot is happening and yet not a lot is happening at the same time. And if you can pack a lot into those small moments, I think that you can just derive a lot of meaning and motion, uh, you know, no matter what you're writing about. I'm glad you mentioned Murakami's book because it's long been on my list, too long. Uh, <laughs> and it sounds like the perfect novel for me to read now. Movement is always dramatic. Seeking always invites in conflicts and obstacles. And we're going to hear more about that motif as we move on to talk with the wonderful Shanti Sekran. There's an exciting new class coming up, and I want to let you all know about it. December 7th and December 14th, taught by my friend and co-founder of SheWrites.com, Deborah Siegel Acevedo. If you've ever dreamed of doing a TEDx talk or a TEDx style talk, this two-session class for just $99 is such a great place to start. Deborah has helped hundreds of thought leaders land TEDx talks, myself included, and I can honestly say that I would not have gotten my TEDx talk if not for Deborah. Because of the way she helped me hone my ideas and present it in a way that worked for the TEDx stage. So, want to get your wheels turning? Dream big, and if this is on your bucket list, join the class. I will be there and you can find out all the details and the link to register at shewritesuniversity.com. Welcome back, everybody. I'm thrilled to introduce today's guest, Shanti Sekarin. And Shanti's most recent novel, The Samosa Rebellion, was just released in September. It might be categorized in the middle grade section of the bookstore, but is good for adults as well. And she also wrote the really great adult novel, Lucky Boy, which was named an Indie Next Great Read and an NPR Best Book of 2017. 
And when she's not writing books, she writes for television on the staff of the NBC medical drama New Amsterdam. Shanti lives in Berkeley with her family and a cat named Frog. Welcome, Shanti. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm, I want to talk about the Samosa Rebellion since that just came out. And it's a very timely story in the way that it comments on the politics of our current world. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the origins of, of your inspiration to write this novel and perhaps summarize it a bit for listeners. Yeah, I, I started writing this novel um, initially because I was having so much trouble with an adult novel that I had been working on. And I really needed, I felt, to get back to the roots of storytelling, just to remind myself how to how to purely, you know, put some characters on a page and, and tell a story with them. And I'd been toying with the idea of writing kid lit middle grade fiction. So I sort of started with that. And the Samosa Rebellion, it actually started off as a story of a boy and his grandmother. That's really all I knew about the story when I when I started. And, you know, of course, we were in the time um, it was the Trump administration We'd had various crises around immigration in this country, and that was all very much on my mind, and from Lucky Boy as well, you know, that was steeped in that, in those themes. So I was coming to the book from a very personal vantage point. It was just a family story. But of course, you know, if you have a family story, larger, more political themes often seep into into that smaller story. And I'd been thinking for a while about grandmothers and grandparents and this idea of migration of families, chain migration, as Trump liked to call it, and how for a while in the US, grandparents were being weirdly kind of vilified as these sort of products of chain migration. And I thought that was so weird. And that had been in my mind as well. So it kind of there, there was a whole mix of things that went into the start of this novel. Well, Shanti, your last novel, Lucky Boy, was inspired by real world events as well. Uh, I know that you heard a story on the radio about a Mexican immigrant who came to the US and she was pregnant and then she was detained and had to give up her baby for adoption. So do you tend to turn to real world events or politics for inspiration for your stories? And what role does fiction have in a better understanding of the world we live in? I mean, you spoke to that already a little bit in your answer, but maybe unpacking for Lucky Boy as well. Yeah, I do seem to turn to real world events. It's not something I would have characterized myself as doing, you know, years and years ago, but it's happened with my last two books. So it must be something that I do. I always, you know, really start off with the, with the personal emotional story and then politics come in often. Um, you know, I feel like fiction can tell us a lot about the real world that we live in, because the real world is really composed of very intimate and small stories that come together to form a sort of conglomerate that that creates what we see in the headlines. So the headline, whatever headline we see, you know, there's always at least one to two people experiencing that headline in a very acute way. 
Well, Shanti, there's this famous quote by Tolstoy who said, all great literature is one of two stories. A person goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town. And I read in an interview that you said that immigration is the ultimate story. And, and that sparked a lot of conversation with Brooke and me today. And I think it's an interesting angle on Tolstoy's theory, an interesting twist on it. And so I was wondering if you can tell us why is immigration the ultimate story for you? If you take Tolstoy's model um, and apply it to the immigrant, an immigrant embodies both those those sides of Tolstoy's model. They're both a person leaving their country and they're a, per- they're a new stranger coming to town. So they kind of um, embody that, that dualism that Tolstoy set up. But then if you look at, for example, Butler's models of storytelling, you know, you have defeating the monster, you have comedy, you have tragedy, you have the hero's journey. I believe he had like seven categories of storytelling. And immigration fits into all of those. Like an immigrant story can hold so much. And when immigrants, fictional or real life, come to this country, they come with all of those stories inside them. And often we don't get to hear that. You know, even as the child of of immigrants, there is a lot that I didn't get to hear and, and just can't know about. And there's this thing that happens, you know, even when, when we don't have parents who are immigrants, between generations, there are so many untold stories. You know, even if you're an American who's been here for six generations, there are things about your parents that you just can, can never know. So whether we're immigrants or not, we come to this country with um, so many stories inside of us. And the immigrant in particular has stories from their journey, has stories from their origin. They have the stories of their transition to a new environment. Um, and so for me, the immigration story is the ultimate because it, it stands in so many different storytelling spaces simultaneously. Well, and it sounds like it's been the ultimate for you for a long time, because I read that you wrote a story when you were just seven years old called California Gypsy, about a gypsy (laughs) who ends up in California and the girl who befriends her. So I'm wondering about how this motif or narrative model or whatever you want to call it has shaped your writing ever since the start. Right, right. I guess now it'd be called California Roma or California Traveler. (laughs) Better word, right? Yeah. I think I was always interested in difference um, in all aspects of, of my life. You know, when I was when I was younger and, and dating people, um, I was interested in people or just making friends. I was interested in people that were different from me, that were um, that uh, whose lives were not sort of copies of mine or parallels of mine. And I think with storytelling, that's that's the case as well. I. I'm often most intrigued when there's a gap between my experience and my protagonist's experience because it's a challenge. I'm not I'm not dipping into my own experience as much. I'm trying to learn about somebody else's. Um, and that first attempt, I think I was seven or eight years old. I gave it up pretty quickly because I I knew maybe this comes from having much older siblings, but I knew that there was so much I didn't know. And there was no way I could know it. And so that kind of uh, daunted me at the time. And I put away the book forever. 
So, you know, I, I had my limits then. I think I have my limits now, but more ways of surmounting them, I guess. You sound very precocious. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I would have realized that at seven or eight. Um, but I'm, I'm really fascinated by the narrative model of migration and the way, as you said, it fits into different spaces of storytelling and another type of migration you've discussed is motherhood. Mm -hmm. And to quote you, you said, it used to fascinate me that my mom would give me her food. In terms of being a writer, I think when you really have your soul and your heart at stake, the way you do when you have a child, you're completely vulnerable. When you have that sort of vulnerability, you have a heightened experience of the world. You have so much more invested in it. And I think that's interesting because I hear so many writers actually complain about what parenthood takes away from writing. And then there are writers like Jonathan Franzen or Richard Ford who said they didn't have children very purposely because they wanted to focus all of their energy into writing, which I actually think is misguided per your quote. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that heightened experience of the world and how that's, you know, what role that's played in your writing life. Yeah. So, um, you know, just, I just want to say all those things are true. I mean, the heightened experience, but also having children, it really, it takes away your time. It takes away a lot of the flexibility. Um, but in terms of my experience, I have two kids. You know, I think when you have children, you re-experience a lot of the world that you've forgotten about. I did at least. I remember when I had a two-year-old, a three-year-old, just walking down the street was an experience and in, in rediscovery of the world. You know, you walk past a spider on its web. These are things that I would just brush past if I were by myself. But with a child, you rediscover, you want to point out these things and the child notices things. Um, so you have that sort of very detailed experience of the world. And then emotionally, I, I, I don't know, you know, if this is true for everyone, but I know that when my first son was born, it was terrifying and he was perfectly healthy and he was fine. Um, but just this idea that you could have a, a person that you were so immediately attached to and knowing that if anything happened to my child, like I would be destroyed, you know, it would just be a permanent wound that I was suddenly vulnerable to because I had had a child and that makes you more vulnerable to the world, but it also, I think, makes you more perceptive um, and not, not just perceptive to dangers, but perceptive to the beauties of the world and to, you know, the, maybe the, the emotions of other people, the movements of other people. It just, it, it's like turning the world on, on hypercolor to some extent. It's, it's really beautifully said, uh, Shanti, and I have a son who's about to turn 11, and I'm excited for him to read the Samosa Rebellion. And so I'm curious why you decided to write this story as middle grade, especially because it has such adult themes. And uh, part two of that question is, uh, is there a reason that you wanted to focus on younger readers? Yeah, so there, there are several answers. Um for one, when I started, as I said earlier, when I started the book, I wasn't thinking about any adult themes for this. It was really more about the growing friendship and relationship between a boy and his grandmother. So the adult themes, I think, came in maybe because of the nature of, of the other stuff I write. It felt important to me to incorporate themes of immigration and xenophobia and classism or just class. And... 
I also very much believe that children are highly cognizant of what's going on in our world, you know, especially children of this generation. They really know a lot about the news and politics and what people are saying, what politicians are saying. And so I didn't see any reason to hide that from them or or to not discuss those those more adult themes with them um, because they experience some very adult themes on a daily basis. And I, I think that children's literature is actually catching up. There's a lot of kids literature out there now that really does deal with some very heavy and, and sometimes very dark themes. And in terms of whether, you know, my decision to make this for younger readers, um, I've been thinking for a while of writing something for younger readers. And I think there's a, there's a certain freedom to it. You're free to just write the story. You don't have to think so much about the subtext and symbolism and and adding these layers and making it complex and adult. Kids just really want a good story. They They don't need all the other stuff and they don't want it. They just want great characters, you know, a few laughs, some adventure and a good plot. And it was really freeing to just focus on those things. Well, Shanti, I'm going to skip to another genre because I think it's interesting to me that you also write for TV um, as the writer of the NBC medical drama New Amsterdam. And so I'm always curious how genres influence each other. So how has writing for TV influenced your fiction writing? Mm, Yeah, I've been thinking about this as well as I've been trying to hit this other book deadline. Um, You know, I think that writing for TV has given me a really good understanding of story structure, which I didn't exactly have before. I knew the concept of the five-act play, but I'd never had to write one. I'd, I'd never had to think in acts. And all of our stories that we break down for New Amsterdam are told in five acts. So each of our main characters will have a five-act arc. So we have to think very specifically in terms of the, the five steps of each narrative. And we're very careful not to let one act step on another one, not to reveal something in act two that should be saved for act three or four. So you're, you're taught to think uh, very specifically about story, which is something I never did as a novelist. I just kind of like, you know, vomit whatever was in me onto the page. And, and sometimes I'd say things two or three times or have two or three different approaches to a certain story detail. And I think that there's an advantage and a disadvantage to that sort of very planned storytelling. I think the advantage is that it, it's allowed me to, to plot better, to think of the steps of my story more clearly. But also, I really have to be careful to preserve some of that wandering spirit that I have as a novelist. You know, so much so much of my novel writing is misguided. And for a long time, I was, I was happily misguided. I would write, you know, chapters of stuff that would never end up in the book and just never think about it, not really worry about it. Um, I've, I've learned to be very efficient with TV writing, but efficiency isn't always the best thing for a novelist. Sometimes you want to be able to just um, write a lot of stuff that's, that's going to go nowhere and to enjoy it and to not worry about what happens with it. So I'm trying to preserve that as well. I love that phrase, happily misguided. 
<laughs> it's kind of how I write sometimes too. Yeah, it is beautifully and said, and I also love what you said about wandering, especially since migration is the theme of this episode and uh, in closing and in that vein, we'd love to ask you what you're moving on to next. So I'm working on a book. Um, it's actually another middle grade book. And then I think after that, I might, I might dip back into adult fiction. So this middle grade book is the story of a girl. Um, right now it's called Boomy's Boombox. And it brings in time travel and 80s music and body image and dance. And it's essentially the story of a girl who has lost her father. And she finds this magical way through a boombox to travel back to the 80s and hang out with her 12-year-old dad in England in 1985. So that's that's what I'm working on now. And it's actually proving a lot harder than I anticipated. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> super fun. I absolutely yeah. love the idea of traveling back to the 80s. So yeah, awesome. Good luck with it, Shanti. Thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks so much, Shanti. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was fun. We'll be right back with today's book trend. Today's book trend is the idea of the novel as a commodity, as unpacked in a recent New Yorker article by Perul Segal, uh, who writes about the book Everything and Less, the novel in the age of Amazon, which was written by Mark McGurl. And here I'm going to quote from the piece that this is a book that considers all the ways a new behemoth has transformed not only how we obtain fiction, but how we read and write it and why, which is really interesting. McGurl writes, the rise of Amazon is the most significant novelty in recent literary history, representing an attempt to reforge contemporary literary life as an adjunct to online retail. That's a very different way to conceive of writing for me. And while I don't like this as a trend, I couldn't disagree with the assessment that it is in some ways. Yeah, I hear you. And the article is sort of dystopian because it speaks to something that I really strongly dislike about certain corners of the fiction market, which is this quick publishing of novels just for the sake of manipulating that algorithms on Amazon. And McGurl writes that in order to fully harness KDP's promotional algorithms, an author needs to publish a new novel every three months. Uh, and since no novelist I've ever heard of can crank out novels that quickly, I mean, certainly you can write fast, but you need a lot of revision. I think it means that they're hiring out writers to accomplish this on behalf of certain name authors who are really trying to build their brand, um, you know, in their footprint. But sometimes I wonder at what cost. Yeah, you and I are a creative purist, I guess, Brooke. So this trend is uh, undoubtedly um, a somewhat disturbing one. You know, I appreciated that the New Yorker piece spoke to what you and I are feeling at the end. Paul Rule wrote, the novel is an intransigently private form. That's the nature of the novel. You have to cross its threshold without completely knowing what lies within. Mere ownership does not constitute possession. I think it's really fascinating to think about how the, the modes of publishing and distribution influence reading and writing. But at the same time, every author makes a decision about the purpose of his or her book. You know, is it meant to be commerce, a personal expression, art, all of the above, or, or maybe it doesn't matter? 
Yeah, totally. And and we'll have to see how it all shakes out. I did meet some young writers recently who are taking work for hire contracts for really little money, like writing full manuscripts for under a thousand dollars. And I got to thinking about, you know, all these publishing entities, because in some ways I can't even call them houses uh, that exist to game the system, you know, by pumping out their novels for a designated author. And it did surprise me a little bit, honestly, that there was such an insatiable readership for these kinds of books. I guess that's the part that I didn't know what to make of exactly. But still, I think that some of these things are really schemes that are relying on deep discounts and loss leaders um, and selling far more ebooks than print books. Yeah, it's definitely a new world out there. I think it's true that we're in a unique literary moment and that the influence of Amazon on literary culture, you know, can't be overstated. As far as how it impacts the future of the novel, the jury is undoubtedly still out. It's a you know, trend worth watching and it's also a trend worth better understanding. Again, I just want to loop back to my comment on an author's ability to choose their purpose and live within the kind of commercial reality of that. I, I once met a couple who, who wrote romance novels together, and they literally uh, alternated chapters. And they wrote a book every three months or so. And they were actually quite successful because the genre of romance, uh, especially with ebooks, the readers really expected that sort of regularity of a book. You know, I think it was it was a much different type of reading experience for them. And if that's your aspiration, I think that's fine. You know, and there are readers for that. But I also don't know a lot of writers pursuing that path. And I don't think that, as you said, Brooke, it oftentimes doesn't pay the money that might be promised in, in a lot of ways. And um, so I don't think you should necessarily rely on that as like a guaranteed source of income, for instance. Yeah, clearly. I, I am intrigued by the whole thing. So we'll keep following and bring updates down the road about how our reading habits are being influenced by fast fiction and algorithms, and also just among other technology that is being created all the time to make these things possible. So that's today's book trend. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Just a reminder, we will be back next week because we are a weekly podcast. You can download us basically anywhere you get any podcast, but most of our listeners come from Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you can give us a rating, we deeply appreciate it. It's nourishment for us for ongoing episodes. Thanks so much. 